Mary hit the floor of the ship's squalid cabin with a dull thud, jolting her awake and sending a pain so sharp up her spine that Zeus might as well have hurtled a thunderbolt into her backside. She tried to breathe, but the fetid odors, dank wood, stale, trapped air, foul clothing, and the urine and excrement of humans and animals were unbearable partners with the sickness that went along with the early stages of pregnancy. The stench she'd briefly escaped during her nap came rushing back in to claim space in her nostrils, and she gagged. Her head spun like scum swirling under a bridge, but that was nothing compared to the sick feeling in her stomach. On this voyage, sleep, when one could come by it through a good dose of laudanum mixed with iron salts, all dissolved with strong liquor in a syrupy elixir, was her only respite from the miseries of sea travel. She reached up for the glass in which the good doctor had mixed the medicine, drained it, then stuck her tongue in deep enough that her face formed a suction as she licked up the last of the metallic-tasting liquid. Her illness had been so relentless that Dr. McLean, sober when on call during the day, had insisted that the captain dock at ports along the way to Constantinople. But the few times they had gone ashore, Mary had to walk through the cities with ammonia-soaked rags covering her nose and mouth, her only protection from the plague that raged through Europe's ports. The disease had been carried into the towns, the radical doctors of the day now professed, and Dr. McLean concurred, on little rat feet. Apparently, as human passengers disembarked, so did the rodents, whose fur housed the fleas that transmitted the pestilence. These risky shore excursions were not even worth the temporary relief from the discomforts of the ship. The flea and lice-infested inns, replete with greasy, rancid food and the most inhospitable hosts in which Mary and her party slept, made conditions on board seem almost luxurious. Mary told herself daily, hourly truth be known, that retaining her good cheer, despite the horrible conditions, boded well for her ability to meet the challenges she would undoubtedly face as a diplomat's wife in the strange and exotic land of the Turks. These inconveniences were a small price to pay for the glorious life that awaited her. She was married to Thomas Bruce, Lord Elgin, the handsomest aristocrat ever to emerge from Scotland, who at the early age of two and thirty had been appointed Ambassador Extraordinary and Minister Plenipotentiary of His Britannic Majesty to the sublime port of Selim III, Sultan of Turkey. At this crucial juncture of history, when England's alliance with the Ottomans against Napoleon and the French was in its infancy, her Elgin had been charged with nurturing the delicate relationship with the Sultan. Elgin's mission was to reassure the Sultan that the alliance with England would hasten Napoleon's defeat in the Ottoman territories, particularly Egypt. Everyone knew that Napoleon had invaded Egypt to gain a stronghold from which to take India away from the English. And that, His Majesty King George III had told Elgin, simply would not do.
Oh, yes, Mary reiterated to herself for the hundredth time. It was the king himself who had suggested to Elgin that he apply for the ambassadorship to Constantinople, which was why Mary now found herself, pregnant, dizzy, and nauseous, lying on the hard floor of the malodorous compartment of the Phaeton. She was there by the express and direct wish of the king. Surely the rewards would be worth the temporary agony. Mary was leaning over on her elbow so that she could massage the pain shooting through her backside when she heard Masterman approach. It could only be Masterman, her lady's maid, for the footsteps were not heavy like Mary's husband or those of any of the members of his staff or the ship's crew. Mary stared up at the horrid green curtain, her only means of privacy these many weeks, waiting for her maid to push it aside. If it isn't the color of vomit, Mary had exclaimed the first time she saw the curtain, for she had just performed that very act, riding out the first of many violent storms she was to face at sea. Now the putrid green thing was swept aside, and Masterman peeked in, her eyes quickly moving from the empty cot to Mary struggling on the floor. I was thrown quite out of my cot, Mary said, answering the older woman's unspoken question. Is there a storm? The captain is taking advantage of a brisk gale to give chase. The earl wishes you to remain below. Give chase? Mary bolted upright, shaking off the dizziness. To French gunboats? It appears thus, Masterman said dryly, standing aside and making way for her mistress. Masterman had been with her since Mary's girlhood and had long ceased to argue for practical measures. Why shouldn't the young, newly married, pregnant countess put herself and her fetus, firstborn heir to all manner of money, land, and titles, at risk of being struck by one of Napoleon's cannons? To mention the obvious would do no good. Masterman picked up Mary's robe and followed the younger woman out of the hole. When Mary recovered from her moment of excitement, she was sure to notice that she was wearing only a nightgown.